Genetic testing is a rapidly advancing technology, and it's becoming more affordable. Whole genome sequencing, which is the process of determining a person's complete DNA sequence, can reveal heritable conditions, predispositions to disease, and more. But discerning the relevance of some sequence variants remains challenging. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor at CMAJ. Today, I'm speaking with a senior author among a group of 53 authors of a research article published in CMAJ. The group is collaborating on the Personal Genome Project Canada and have published the findings from the initial cohort of 56 participants who had their whole genome sequenced. Professor Steve Scherer is a genome scientist leading the Center for Applied Genomics at the Hospital for Sick Children and the McLaughlin Center at the University of Toronto. He is the lead author of the study and is joining me from Toronto to tell us more about what they've been working on. Welcome, Steve. Hello. Great to be here. So for those of us who are not familiar with it, what is the Personal Genome Project Canada? Um, As is often the case in science, quantum advances in technology, in this case, uh, what we call whole genome sequencing, outpace the ability to understand what the impact of the advances might be. So, in essence, we started the Personal Genome Project Canada um, 10 years ago, and we designed it as much of, as, a, as a social experiment as a scientific experiment. And to do this, we needed to really understand how each of these related to each other. So, um, our, our effort, called, we'll call it PGP for Personal Genome Project Canada, uh, is to try to learn what all of the questions we should be asking around whole genome sequencing before they sneak up and kind of nip us in the heel. And the idea was that if we got most of the answers right, we believe that genome sequencing would become a mainstay in medical management so long as the information is used in the right way. So we started this project, um, as I said, 10 years ago in 2007. You might remember uh, the genome sequence of Craig Venter came out at that time. This was the first personal genome sequence of an identified uh, human being. And our group here at SickKids was part of that study. And we wanted to see how this might impact um, Canadian health and medical management. So the PGP project was designed to address issues of ethics and privacy, sample collection and sample preparation, the genome sequencing itself, uh, including the evolving technology, because at the time when we started this, it actually cost tens of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to do a genome, uh, and we're now at thousand dollars a genome. The informatics and medical annotation, and we spend a lot of time talking about that um, that part of the project in the CMAJ paper. Uh, the genetic counseling, the data sharing, and return of information. So this paper really is the culmination of 10 years of effort packaging everything into one um, medical and scientific publication. So that's that's the story, and we're quite excited about it, and we're very excited that it's coming out and written in a, in a manner that we hope uh, will most benefit the Canadian uh, health and medical community. So this is a huge body of work that's gone on for a number of years. What's the focus of the study that you've published in CMAJ, the particular focus of this study? And where does it fit into the project's overall timeline? In reality, being Canada's 150th birthday in 2017, we wanted to publish the first 150 Canadian whole genome sequences. Um, The project was so immense that uh, in the spring of 2017, we quote-unquote froze the data uh, for the first 56 um, volunteers in this project. Um, and what we report on is 
a very, very thorough description of all of their genetic variants and how they might be involved in uh, in medical outcome. So that's the essence of the paper. Um, we brought on um, really the Canadian experts, but these are also international experts who uh, who do this kind of work. And um, and we spent the better half of a, a better part of half the year looking at these 56 genome sequences in the context of everything we could we can kind of pull from the data and and put it into this manuscript written in a way that might answer the question for a, a physician or practitioner you know how can I use this data to answer questions of health of of the patient that comes into my office um, in context of where the where we are currently in the project we have well over a thousand um, individuals that have enrolled from across Canada. Um, we've sequenced a, a few hundred of them now, but as I said, we had to had to stop the project to describe these 56. So this is the first paper we published in, in, in 10 years since we started it uh, on the project. Um, uh, ultimately, I think as the, the prices plummet, we, we believe that probably every single individual who's born in Canada will ultimately have their genome sequence done. So if you put it in the context of, of where we are uh, circa early 2018, I think it's very early in the project. Um, but um, those, th this is a research project. That would happen as things transfer into the into hospital-based diagnostic laboratories and, and healthcare clinics and doctor's offices. So, um, but I see that playing out in the next decade. So let's say we're maybe halfway through the project. Uh, things are going to move very, very quickly from here on in. How do individuals become part of the study and what's their involvement? These are volunteers. These are ostensibly healthy uh, individuals. Um, the Globe and Mail ran um, a folio series in 2012 on this project and it got national exposure and we had um, well over a thousand people who registered uh, via um, a survey that the Globe and Mail had, had posted on their website. So this is Canada-wide. Um, out of convenience, it was a convenience sample. Many people are from in and around Toronto because um, to be involved in the project, you actually have to um, fill, you have to complete a 27-question entrance examination that has um, some rudimentary genetics questions. You have to consent for uh, full data release and that has to happen at multiple stages throughout the process. So um, we included everyone we could, and we continue to include everyone we can. Um, but there has to be, you know, people who can who can pass this test. Um, so that's that's how it started. Uh, as indicated, now now we have some funding, and the and the, the cost of sequencing has dropped substantially. That um, probably most of the effort it goes into enrolling participants. Uh, as opposed to paying for the sequencing, which in the early days, the sequencing was so expensive that it really limited our numbers. So um, we wanted to get this this paper out described in, in CMAJ as really the, um, uh, I think, the, the framework for really scaling up now, uh, now that the prices of sequencing have dropped. And that, that's where we'll be going um, in the next uh, few years. Back to the paper then. You sequenced the whole genome of these 56 participants, and you found millions of sequent variants and tens of thousands of copy number variants, but you didn't analyze everything. How did you identify which variants you wanted to analyze further? This is a good question. Um, let's just really make, make, make it clear what we did. 
Uh, we use the methodology of whole genome sequencing. Um, your readership will probably have heard of uh, exome sequencing, which sequences uh, about 2% of the genome, uh, that 2% that encodes proteins. And they'll be very familiar with um, uh, clinical chromosome microarrays, we call them, that are used for testing for deletions and duplications uh, of DNA. Uh, this is kind of a standard of care test for developmental disorders. Um, so here we did whole genome sequencing, which really the it's it's the you know it's the ultimate genetics genomics technology. We we sequence every single chemical base pair nucleotide in the genome about 38 times, and then we put that into massive computers, and we compute um, and and mine out all of the different types of genetic variation. Um, so there have been other studies that have looked at uh, single nucleotide variants, uh, so single genetic uh, letter changes. Um, this is the first study that's done really comprehensive whole genome sequencing and looked at the entire repertoire of genetic variants, including, including as you said, copy number variations, more traditional chromosome structure changes um, like translocations and inversions. And we also looked at mitochondrial variants. The mitochondrial is outside the nuclear genome, but uh, as is well established in medical genetics literature, involved in a lot of genetic conditions. So again, this this for these 56 in, individuals, we threw everything we could at them. Um, but as you pointed out, there's millions of genetic variants in a given genome. So uh, on average, there's about 3.4 million single nucleotide variants, and um, and roughly eight what we call uh, insertion deletions or copy number variants about roughly 800,000 per genome. Um, and most of those are what we call benign. They're involved, uh, um, they're random genetic changes that don't have any medical outcome. So we have to use filters. This gets to your specific question. We use filters to categorize the likelihood that a specific genetic variant may be involved in, in a disease. And, and what we do is we we put all of the variants identified in a given genome into big, massive files, and then we compare against all of the um, known mutation databases, like, for example, cystic fibrosis or Tysacs or uh, breast cancer, for example. But then we take it one step further, uh, and we also predict the likelihood that a specific genetic change may uh, have a deleterious alteration to a gene or, or its product, a protein. So it may lead from two copies uh, that you would typically see in the population to only one copy of a gene or lead to a disruption of a protein, that kind of thing. Uh, and there's been a, a well set of uh, criteria established by the American College of Medical Genetics, which we belong to, that um, set standards for how you characterize these types of genetic variants or slash mutations. Um, so, anyways, if you look in, in the paper and look at figure one and figure two, we, we describe how you go through this filtering process, um, and then we come down to uh, something you can manage in an Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> and then look at them by, by eye and by hand to really look to see how it may um, affect the, the volunteer or the patient that comes into the clinic. And that's, that's what we presented in, in, table, in the tables in the main manuscript. In terms of disease-associated variants, what did you find? So um, in the 56 uh, volunteers, and again, just to emphasize, these are ostensibly um, 
uh, healthy individuals. Say, if someone had a specific disease that they knew about and they were looking for an answer for that disease, we didn't enroll them. We wanted people who were healthy because we see genomics playing out in the general population. We wanted to know what we would find. So to answer your question, in 14 of the um, 56 individuals, so 25%, we found what we called a variant that would be pathogenic or likely pathogenic to cause a specific uh, medical genetic disease. So um, that's a little bit higher than what was found in some other studies um, that were using lesser technology. So we expected it to be higher because we're using a more comprehensive whole genome sequencing. And as I said, we looked at all the class of variants, but one in four, we found information that would be reported back to them in a clinical diagnostic setting. Um, we also found that 53 of the 56 individuals carried rare recessive alleles, um, and this would be relevant if they uh, had a spouse, for example, that also carried a, um, a mutation in the same gene and their children or offspring would, would be um, at a higher risk to develop these uh, specific diseases. And we found that every individual in the group carried um, a gene that was relevant to, or, or sorry, a variant that was relevant to um, pharmacogenetic response to particular drugs. This is a, a newly developing area. Um, there's a lot of unknown information here, but uh, we wanted to emphasize the fact that if you take all of these variants in, in combination, that everybody had something that we thought was interesting that would uh, implicate um, them to look closer at the decisions they make in their health, their lifestyle, uh, or in genetic counseling situations. And, and just to take it one, one step further, this project was really unique around the world because all of the participants got their data back via genetic counselor. Uh, so we spent a lot of time explaining to them what these different variants mean in their own personal situation. So, um, you know, it was, it was I think, enlightening in, in that we, we found so many variants and we could narrow them down. But the, the, um, I think the most interesting observation from the study is how many variants we found that we just don't know what to do. We, we suspect that they're involved because they lead to a damaging change in a, in a gene and a protein, um, but we don't know what that outcome is. It could be predictive of something that might happen dozens of years downstream or some other ailment or trait that they carry. Um, and, and this was, again, uh, really, the impetus of the project was to increase the number of data points we could compare against. Does that mean that the the ones that you don't know about, you're going to continue to study going forward? Yes, there's a worldwide effort to put all of this data, not just for these personal genome projects. There's an equivalent project in the United States and one in the UK and one in Germany uh, into the public realm, but there are other projects that are sequencing samples from specific diseases. Uh, I also run um, an autism genome sequencing project. And, and the goal is to put you know, all of this data up so we can compare and contrast these variants. And we show uh, in one of the figures in the paper, as we have more and more data to con compare against, as our um, sample size increase, we can make more sense of these variants of what we, what we call them variants of unknown significance. Um, these are rare variants in the population, so they're present in less than 1% of the population, which means either they are new to that individual or that family and haven't been subjected to, um, to uh, evolutionary selective pressures, or it means that the reason they're rare is that they're not, not passed on 
uh, in future generations because they're involved in a specific disease or disorder. Um, and, and in our experience, it's about 50-50. So we think each individual is carrying dozens, if not hundreds, of other variants uh, that we call variants of unknown significance that have uh, an impact in, in their health. We just don't know what it is yet. Uh, and we think the way to, to tease that out is to increase our sample size, both in, this own, in our own project, but, but by comparing data around the world. And, and I'll just um, give you, a, you know, kind of a, a, an anecdotal kind of story. It, I think we're really in the age now uh, where we were probably 10 years ago or 15 years ago with uh, global positioning or uh, GPS units. Um, you know, the GPS units in the early, early automobiles they, they didn't have a lot of data to compare against. They didn't have Google Maps at the time. And uh, so often they would take you to the wrong place um, because they didn't have enough data to, to position against. And in the early days of genomics, where we only had uh, a few dozen genomes, we, we didn't know a lot about what these variants meant. Um, this project is the most comprehensive, but our sample size is still small. We, we think as a community, when we get into the millions and we start to link this to medical health records, that um, the, predict, the predictive value of these genetic variants is going to be similar to a GPS unit. It's going to get you to the information you need a lot of the time. But we really need to increase our sample size. Uh, and that's what we'll be doing over the next uh, few years. That's a really great analogy because my mind almost boggles thinking about the, the amount of accumulated data that you'll have in this global collaboration and how useful that is and the possibilities of it. You know, if you think of, of evolution, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's essentially a decision-making tree. What happens uh, in the genome, in each new genome, and we actually had a, a parent, uh, two biological parents and, a, and an offspring trio in this, uh, in this paper. Um, believe it or not, there's only a, about 100 new mutations in each individual in the population. So very much so, you are like your, each of your parents. <laughs> you inherit half of their genome. And there's a, roughly 100 um, new mutations. And of course, there's, there's meiotic shuffling uh, in their germ cells. Um, but DNA-wise, uh, you're not a lot different than your parents. And, and, and so evolution is really a decision-making tree. Um, you have a genetic mutation, and it's selected for, against, or it's, or it's just neutral, and it kind of carries along in the population. That's exactly the approach we're using here. We're trying to we're really just in these early days looking at the rare genetic variants that, that kind of the low-hanging fruit that stick out like a sore thumb that we can predict because they're rare in the population, they're probably involved in the disease or we find them in a disease uh, database like the BRCA or fibrosis mutation databases, for example. Right. But, um, but as we get thousands and thousands and thousands of individuals sequenced and we can string these together into families, we think we can use um, artificial intelligence approaches to essentially decode the decision-making process of evolution. And it will be these collections of, of individual or combinations of rare variants that predispose to disease. The key will be to link the genomic information to the um, uh, medical and administrative uh, databases. And, and that's, again, something we, need, we can do very well here in Canada. And another reason we wanted to publish this in CMAJ uh, to show how genomics can be linked through physician records and hospital records to really have a predictive impact in the healthcare setting. And that's where this whole field of precision medicine is going. So give us an example of a pathogenic variant that you identified, or more than one. 
So we summarized those in um, table two of the paper, and we outlined specifically the 19 quote-unquote pathogenetic variants. Uh, and these encompass genes that are known to be involved in breast cancer, cardiac disease, um, neuropsychiatric disorders, in particular ADHD. Uh, there are some chromosomal abnormalities and some mitochondrial variants that we talk about. These are, these are genetic variants that um, are highly predictive of, of known um, clinical outcomes. And, um, you know, in a typical genetic testing hospital-based setting, we reported back to those individuals uh, as we did uh, here in this study. So, um, and in some cases, because we had a rudimentary family history um, of, of the individual, we, to enter into the study, they had to report on baseline medical information record. Uh, and we had the ability through the genetic counseling delivery of the information to ask them more questions. We could confirm that there was a family history of one of these um, health indicators we, we had mentioned to them. Uh, in other cases, um, when they went back and, and dug a little bit deeper, they found some evidence that, yes, in fact, we were right in our predictions. In other cases, there was there was actually no um, personal or, or family history of the particular disease that we had identified through the genetics, suggesting either there was still to come or... Uh, as we talk about extensively in the paper, some of these variants don't express, uh, don't turn into these forms of disease unless they, you know, they're presented in a particular environment, for example. Um, so we had kind of a mix of everything, and, and we outlined these, these uh, stories. And we, we actually also, in, in this um, table in the paper, give some medical management um, implications. So what should happen um, beyond the genetic counseling uh, data going back to the family. Uh, in some cases, the families then went back and, and had the, because um, this is a research study, had it validated uh, in clinically approved diagnostic laboratories to find out more about the family history. Um, what I would also point out is that, again, this study was unique in, in that we could interact with the research participants, and some of the variants are predictive um, to have outcome in future generations. So some of the chromosome changes, for example, we had a, a large inversion found in one of the participants. There was a mitochondrial variant found in another one. Um, because most of the participants were past their childbearing years, they were uh, um, they had already had their families, the data was more relevant to, um, to their children or the family planning that may happen uh, generations um, away. So um, this is really, you know, why genetics is different and why whole genome sequencing is different. It affects um, the, the past. It tells you about your past. It tells you about your present, and it can also tell you about your, your medical future. I want to go back to something you touched on earlier about pharmacogenetics and genetic basis of pharmacological response. Can you tell us about your findings regarding variants associated with drug metabolism and adverse drug reactions? What were your findings there? Right. So we have a we have a pharmacogenetics uh, clinic here at SickKids, and um, this type of testing using a, a panel of tests is already uh, performed. Uh, so we actually had one of the world's uh, best uh, teams uh, right nearby, which which was wonderful. And the first thing we did as part of the project is the this specific panel because these regions of the genome um, they're they're it, they involve what we call cytochrome oxidase genes, which are really hard to assay using standard genetic technologies. And it took years to develop uh, panels of tests that um, really doctors and clinics from around uh, Canada would use all of the time. 
The first step was to show that we could actually um, ascertain the same information using the whole genome sequencing approach that we described in the paper. And the short answer is, is uh, for all but one specific test, the, it, the data is all there. Um, so we did go back and run a specific assay uh, for this outlier test that didn't get captured by the, the whole genome signal. It's not that it's, the data is not there, it's just really hard to interpret. So um, to get back to the, the question, we found on average that each participant had what we call um, three, well, had 3.9 diplotypes, so about four um, pharmacogenetically relevant variants in each of their genomes. And in some cases, um, you know, we found the carriers were at risk for potentially life-threatening adverse drug reactions. And we talk about what some of these variants were. There's one participant that had six of these pharmacogenetic variants. So he, he uh, the individual was loaded um, uh, and really needed to have this data back because if they went on specific types of drugs, they may have an adverse uh, response. I wanted to emphasize, though, so it's a great question, and, and this is the, the area that I think probably most uh, of the population and the, the healthcare field is going to be interested in uh, because it affects everyone um, at all stages of life. We need to have this. It's also the area where we know the, the least. Um, I've tried to follow this field myself for the better part of 15 years so I could better understand how we interpret these variants. Uh, and we won't really know until we really expand our numbers. But for some of the genetic variants, it's highly predictive. And others, I, I think it's really gray zone. We don't know yet. So anyways, it's early days, but um, we wanted to make sure that in, in the study, we, we pointed to any particular genetic variant, including the pharmacogenetic variants, that might uh, lead to risk for a particular medical outcome, in this case, drug response. You mentioned that um, each participant each of these 56, received the results of their genetic testing via genetic counseling, and how did they react? These were highly engaged individuals. Um, as indicated, they received the data back um, that was relevant for them via genetic counselor. Uh, I was not in personally in the genetic counseling uh, return of results, but uh, we do this kind of work, and I was getting, of course, feedback. The interviews uh, around the genetic counseling return of results, I think, exceeded in length. Uh, in every case, the the original entrance interview where they had the 27-question entrance exam. So people were highly engaged, very interested. Um, I didn't mention it at the outcome, but as part of entrance into the project, um, they they had to not only pass the test but sign off on an ethics consent form that indicated they had also discussed the project with their immediate nuclear family members, and if they were a monozygotic twin carrying the same genome complement, that uh, twin also had to, to to sign off on the study uh, because of the impact of the genetics. So, um, but anyways, the the return of results. I think the interviews went from. Uh, anywhere from an hour to in a, a half day and with follow-ups, depending on, you know, the, the level of information. Uh, in some cases, we, we use that as a step to get more information to see if our predictions in the genetic variants were indeed true, as I talked about earlier. And in some cases, they were. In other cases, uh, it, it may have had more impact for um, family planning or for uh, subsequent generations. But um, this is what was unique to our Canadian project. In the equivalent U.S. project, they do not get their data back from a genetic counselor. Um, once they get the paper through the scientific re review, 
uh, and at all stages along the way, um, this was highlighted as a major strength. Um, and you'll see this over and over again, projects you read about like 23andMe and uh, any type of genetic t- testing. I think what's unique in Canada is our genetic um, counseling infrastructure and how much emphasis is to get the interpretation right. Uh, now, I just wanted to use that to say that because the data we generate is static, we now have the genome sequence of these individuals, that that doesn't change over time. But the ability to interpret it does change as we have more data to compare against. So typically what we will do as part of this project or others is every year we'll go back and re-annotate the same genome sequence. And again, as part of this personal genome project, uh, we we found now that we can have essentially, I, I think it's about a 10% increase in information when we re-annotate a year out from the previous study. So when we think, of, you know, when we look at these 56 indiv- individuals uh, that's in this paper and we look at them a year from now, we're going to have information for another 10% of the individuals that has to go back. So we have to explain that to them also. That you can't just, um, you know, rest on on this interpretation. So the counselors are very good at doing this. That sounds awesome. Do you know if any individuals plan to do anything with the information that they received? Well, we know that some of them already have um, um, shared it with other family members, gone back to their health clinics. Some of these uh, volunteers, um, they were all interviewed at the at the MedCan clinic. Uh, MedCan was a, an incredible partner that volunteered time and the, the counselors were the ones there that returned the data. That doesn't mean that all the participants were from MedCan. They just had to had to go there. Um, and I, I should say that um, the interviews were all in, done in person for entrance into the project. To get the data back by counselor, most were in person, but some were by phone because there were people from across the country that could only uh, do it by phone. But anyways, in some cases, there, were fo- there was follow-up genetic um, testing done in, in clinical laboratories, uh, sharing of information with family members, ascertainment of more complete family histories, um, modification of lifestyles. Um, you know, there's been a series of additional research studies stemming out of this, and we didn't have a chance to talk about it in this paper, although it is mentioned uh, we also uh, established um, what are called stem cell lines from a subset of the volunteers so we could go back and ask specific biological questions. Does the mutation actually lead to a change in a protein function, for example? Um, this all happened in via the genetic counseling and the return of results. So absolutely, uh, I think for every participant, something happened. Uh, the level of activity ranged, as I said, from follow-up testing to change of lifestyle to you know, being more interested in, in genetic studies and sharing the data with um, with their doctors. I, I would also point out that there were a few uh, very, very highly engaged um, participants, and they wanted their entire genome sequence back, and we gave it to them. And, you know, some of them took it to their family doctors and said, you know, what can you do with this? <laughs> So there'll be follow-up studies, uh, you know, publishing our results on, on those experiences too. Um, so again, the idea behind the project was to was to kind of plant all of these different scenarios out there, gather data back, and then and then follow up in greater detail to go forward. When you talk of patients taking their whole genome sequence back to their family doc, I think this is the thing that fills non-specialists like me with absolute dread when we read about stories about whole genome sequencing. And when the Globe and Mail story comes out and this paper comes out. 
I anticipate that there'll be a number of patients who will approach their family docs and say, can we be referred for this kind of testing? Now, can anyone be referred? So um, every time we have a paper that comes out, this this happens. And, and, and again, we think that getting this paper right is so important. We spent a lot of time trying to provide um, insight and experiences in the scientific paper so so your readership can can have some of the answers, but they're never going to have all of them. You're right. Um, you know, once this paper comes out, uh, it's going to amplify the the question: What do we do now? Uh, we we see about all these interesting results, and I, I I'm worried about my my health. I want to know if I'm going to have these different predispositions, or more importantly, most people want to know how it's going to affect their kids. Uh, what should they do? So. The recommendations that I, you know, I will try to make is I don't think people should be worried about getting their whole genome sequence done unless they have a reason to have it done. They have an undiagnosed disease. They're, they're worried about some medical ailment where they haven't got a full set of answers. Often these are indeed genetics. And if you want to have the best experiment done, what we present in the data, it should be whole genome sequencing. In the clinical setting across um, Canada, for um, many early developmental disorders, uh, I mentioned earlier, clinical microarray testing is the standard of care, and the provinces uh, pay for this in congenital malformations and developmental disorders. Uh, here in Ontario, there's certainly near to 10,000 tests done in clinical microarrays a year. Um, they are enhancing those to also include exome sequencing. These are sequencing the genes. Um, that is largely outsourced now to the United States. Uh, in some cases, it's being done in, as panel tests in hospital settings across Canada. And many of your physicians will be referring for the cardiomyopathy panel or um, specific um, types of rare disease tests, that kind of thing, uh, intellectual disability genes. Um, there's different panel tests that are done. Uh, so there's processes for... Um, testing to be done on a genome-wide scale, but for whole genome sequencing where you get everything uh, in one experiment, as we talked about in the paper, um, right now that's only done as part of a research study, uh, or uh, the individual can pay to have it done um, in, in a U.S., largely a U.S. or non-Canadian laboratory, and, and there are people showing up in the clinic clinics now with these genome sequences. We hear all the time. I get emails almost every single, I would say every week from either a physician or a, a, a patient where they've got their genome sequence done outside the healthcare system and they want to know what it means. Um, so we tried to provide a, a, a framework of, of answers, <laughs> but it's, it's very early days. And as I said in my opening comments, the technology here is, is way ahead of the science and the medicine, um, but it's a reality. I'll just close on, on this question and saying, um, in preparing for this interview on Monday, two days ago, um, at the annual J.P. Morgan meeting they have in, in the U.S., Illumina, the major sequencing company that, of the technology we used, uh, they announced a, a new technology that will be out in the next few years that's going to move things into the $100 genome realm. So it, it, it's not far away, but, you know, as, as the heel prick test is done, you're also going to have a whole genome sequence done before um, before the child leaves the hospital, and then that data is going to be there. So the system has to make sense of it. 
Well, the rapidity of development is is certainly something. How do you see whole genome sequencing fitting into healthcare in the short term and also looking way ahead into the future? What's our future going to look like in terms of integration of whole genome sequencing into regular healthcare? I do believe that um, I would say in three years, maybe five, but I, I really do believe in three years, whole genome sequencing will supplant um, the exome and the microarray sequencing, that, uh, microarray, sorry, testing that's done now in the cl- clinical genetic setting. Where there's a referral question, uh, and instead of doing these combined tests, you would just do whole genome sequence because A, it's going to cost uh, less, and you just, you get an order of magnitude more data that um, will help uh, increase the clinical yield of interpretations. So that's going to happen. The economics will dictate this with the new technologies coming. But beyond that, um, as we, you know, as our quote-unquote GPS unit uh, and information becomes better and better, a predictable value, I do think that um, when the cost drops for, you know, the hundred or so dollar range, even a few hundred dollars, that every individual will have this this done and they'll carry it around on their, uh, well, they won't carry it on their on their iPhone, they'll, they'll, I still use a BlackBerry. So, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have it in a cloud, they'll have it in a cloud database and we're developing ways to do this and you'll just link into it. It'll be part of their, their medical electronic records and physicians will be linking into it to make a, um, to make a decision, say on a particular dose of a drug or the likelihood a variant will be involved in breast cancer. So I think it's just going to be common medical information um, uh, that drives decision-making and informs individuals and their doctors. Um, and as I said, I, I think the whole genome sequence is, it's just a few years out. The, the, the rate at which this is changing, is, is, it is mind-boggling. Um, and, and the technology is there now. The other point is that the, the machines themselves are becoming much smaller. Um, you know, the machines we use to do this project are the state-of-the-art. They're, they're called the Illumina X machine. Um, we have 15 of them across Canada, um, funded by the Canada Foundation for Innovation and, and Genome Canada. Um, and uh, it costs us 1000 U.S. to do each genome sequence. These machines are about the size of a refrigerator or so. There's new machines coming that are, are as small as um, uh, like a printer, and some of them are even smaller. They're like your, like your phone. Um, so there'll be point-of-care type testing. The turnaround on the sequencing, there are some machines that are coming that will do it in 10 minutes. So um, this is a brave new world we're in, into now. And, and again, part of this project uh, was to help get people thinking where things are going by giving them the data to start to deal with. Um, you know, we need to have more investment in medical education. And probably the doctors need to have more genetics education in their curriculum, too, I would argue. <laughs> I would argue that, too. So a brave and exciting new world, indeed. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Professor Steve Scherer, genome scientist leading the Center for Applied Genomics at the Hospital for Sick Children and the McLaughlin Center at the University of Toronto. Along with his co-authors, he published a research article in CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor at CMAJ. Thank you for listening.